Edify means to enlighten, encourage, and uplift individuals intellectually, morally, and spiritually. And that's exactly what our Edify podcast guests do as they share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Scott Landry. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Edify podcast. Uh, Carter Sneed, Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame and Director of the Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture there is with us. Welcome, Carter. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So you're best known for your writing and teaching in public bioethics. What gave you the passion for that area of study and writing? Well, providentially, I, you know, after law school, after clerking and working briefly uh, in the private sector, I had the great fortune of being asked to become the general counsel of President Bush's Council on Bioethics, where I was met and met with and mentored by an extraordinary array of folks, including Chairman Leon Cass and Marianne Glendon and Robbie George and, and many, many others, and became passionate about these issues um, and really realized that my vocation was to focus on the issues of the ethical questions that arise from advances in biomedical science and biotechnology, and specifically the law and public policy that concerns those kinds of issues, uh, and to make my life's work uh, centered on those questions. So um, for those listening to the podcast, what are the biggest public bioethical issues that you're studying now that uh, all of our listeners should be aware of? Well, there's some, some interesting and novel applications of biotechnologies that, that, are, are inter- that, that are worth thinking about, especially involving gene editing, changing the genetic constitutions of our children, doing more and even more problematic and exploitative forms of research involving embryonic human beings. But honestly, the old questions are still very much with us. The question of abortion uh, looms very large uh, even now, especially now, given the recent decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an important case uh, this upcoming uh, term in the fall of 2021. Um, the issues of end-of-life decision-making, you know, years ago, nine years ago, you and I were talking about assisted suicide in the state of Massachusetts. That issue has not gone away. There's still a, a well-funded and broad campaign to legalize assisted suicide. Uh, where we will always be faced with the questions of end-of-life decision-making more generally, the questions around discontinuing life-sustaining measures, um, and, uh, and the question of embryo research more broadly is, again, still with us. So nothing has really gone away, unfortunately. Uh, there are some new interesting uh, biological possi- or biotechnological possibilities to exploit and manipulate human life in disturbing and problematic fashions, but, um, but we're, st- we, we're still working on the old stuff, too. You just mentioned that important case before the Supreme Court, the Dobbs case. Um, Many of our listeners, I'm sure, are hoping that it either strikes down Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, or it leads to that. Um, What's likely to happen if the Supreme Court strikes it down? Yeah. So first of all, I'm pretty optimistic that the Supreme Court will strike down and uh, the the American abortion jurisprudence put in place by Roe v. Wade in 1973 and re-entrenched, albeit uh, pursuant to a different rationale in 1992. and uh, because the question that they've granted, uh, that is to say, the, the question that the, the court has agreed to answer and analyze uh, is so st- stark and so clean, uh, the Mississippi law obviously violates 
the law set forth in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The only way to keep both of those things in place, the abortion jurisprudence and the law, is to reimagine and rewrite the law, the, the law of abortion in yet a new uh, and, and equally problematic precedent. And I just it, I can't imagine that we don't have five or six justices who are who realize the folly of that, who realize how inconsistent that is with the judicial role and the rule of law, not to mention the human consequences of you know six, over 60 million abortions since 1973. I just am optimistic that we have justices on the court who will, will do the right thing, despite the, the enormous pressure to not do the right thing. So, but to your question, what happens if they overturn Roe v. Wade? The most likely scenario is that the question will revert to the political processes of the states, as it was from you know, the founding of the United States up until 1973, where the states and, you know, the way it's been done in every country around the world, where people have been allowed to govern themselves on this question. They've been allowed to extend the protections of the law to the unborn child without interference by the court of last resort. And most likely what will happen, it will revert to the states. And those of us who are pro-life will have to begin a new phase of our campaign to build a culture of life in the law by, by convincing the political branches to protect the unborn child as one of us. And, um, and I, you know, things look good in those states that are, have been champing at the bit to do that since 1973. States like my own state of Indiana and Ohio and Texas and Alabama and other states. And then you'll have states like New York and Illinois and probably California who will um, take an approach that uh, is, is more permissive. They still probably won't be as permissive as the regime that Roe v. Wade imposed on the country, uh, but they will not uh, likely in the near term uh, see the truth of the matter. And we're going to have to work hard to convince those folks to do the right thing. So you and uh, Ambassador Marianne Glendon filed an amicus brief uh, on the Dobbs case. Is that the first for you that has gone before the Supreme Court? And what's a quick summary of yeah, what was in the so brief? It's, I, I've signed amicus briefs in the past, but I've never uh, written one with, with a, you know, in my own name. I mean, I've, I've joined scholars in support of the petitioner or the respondent. But in this case, it's Marianne and I. Uh, Marianne is a wonderful friend and mentor for many years now. Uh, making the case to the Supreme Court that intellectual integrity and honesty, uh, the commitment to the rule of law and the, and, and the legitimacy of the court requires them to unmake the entire apparatus of abortion jurisprudence they've imposed on us since Roe and Casey in 1973 and 1992. We explain in, uh, in a very dramatic way, I think, why there is no grounding in the text, history, or tradition of the Constitution or American law that prevents the elected branches from protecting unborn children. The law and Roe v. the rule in Roe v. Wade was entirely fabricated, made up from whole cloth, uh, in a breathtaking departure from the norms and 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 substance of our of our nation's legal tradition. Um, and then we also make the argument as to why principles of stare decisis, which is a kind of prudential doctrine that invites courts to think about the practical consequences of undoing prior precedents, even if they were wrongly decided, uh, the courts are invited to think about, you know, what impact that would have on people organizing their lives or, you know, whether or not the past precedent has been uh, hollowed out or rendered unsustainable by changes in facts or law since it was originally announced. And we explain in, in detail why the principles of stare decisis do not prevent the court from overturning Roe and Casey. And then we conclude by echoing an argument that I make in a recent book of mine 
arguing that not only is the law of abortion in America constitutionally untethered, not only is it is it does do principles of stare decisis counsel in turn, uh, in favor of overruling those, but also the law it works an additional evil, namely. It, it frames and entrenches a kind of vision of human identity and flourishing in the law of abortion that is inhumane, unjust, and results in both mother and child missing out on essential protections that they would otherwise receive. It frames the question of abortion as a, a conflict between atomized individual strangers, one of whom is a person, one of whom is not a person, fighting over uh, the resources of the woman's body and future. And that is not a fair or accurate understanding or even a human understanding of what pregnancy is. And to describe the co human context of abortion in that way uh, biases the answer to the question in favor of granting a, a right to lethal private violence, which is precisely what happened in Roe. And, uh, and instead, if we were to describe the human context of abortion as what it is, which is a, a crisis involving a mother and her child, we would all, all decent people would drop what we're doing and rush to their aid. We wouldn't simply give one the right to kill the other and then walk away from both of them. We would actually um, embrace them as, as our beloved members of the human family and community and do everything we can to help and save both of them. Carter's book that he mentioned is entitled What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, and we recommend it very strongly here at Edify. Uh, in addition to writing uh, and teaching uh, at Notre Dame, um, you direct the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, and that hosts a lot of events to help folks understand uh, public bioethical issues and life issues. Tell us about some of the upcoming events that uh, those listening to this podcast might be interested yeah, in. Yeah, thanks, thanks for asking. Just very briefly for, for your audience, those who don't know, the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture's purpose is to share the richness of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition across a wide variety of disciplines, both at Notre Dame on campus, but also as Notre Dame in the public square, in the global public square, to build a community of love and a civilization uh, that respects unborn children as well as the common good and human dignity. Um, we have student formation programs, we do academic programming, and we have book series. Uh, we support the hiring of uh, wonderful faculty at the University of Notre Dame who share our passion for the Blessed Mother's University's Catholic mission. Uh, and of course, we're Notre Dame's principal engine of culture of life, research, scholarship, teaching, and public witness. Um, and uh, in that vein, we have the fall conference. Uh, it's, uh, it's the largest academic event uh, at Notre Dame uh, every year. It usually brings a thousand people to campus, a hundred speakers, always organized around a broad human theme. One year it was beauty, one year it was friendship. And folks, uh, if you haven't been to the University of Notre Dame, you got to come. It's, as I said, it's the Blessed Mother's University and uh, it's, it's an electrifying atmosphere. It's beautiful in the fall. We hope people can join us. What's the easiest way for people to find more about that event and the work of the DeNicholas Center and your other writings? Yeah, go to our website at ethicscenter.nd.edu for all the information about the fall conference as well as our other programming that I mentioned and our activities. Um, and if you want, if you want interested in picking up my book, uh, what it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics, you can, uh, simply go to Harvard University Press's website or amazon.com or anywhere you buy books, just Google my name and the name of that book. And, and, uh, you should, you should find it, uh, in short order. Thanks Carter for being part of edify as we try to edify Catholics so that we all can edify America. Well, thank you for your important work. Thank you for listening. 
to make it easy for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes. Please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.